welcome to Tech Kitchen Talks, episode 25. In this episode, Dave from Silicon Valley and myself, Glenn from London, discuss what is it with the new top-level domains being added, the metaverse is not dead with the new Apple Vision Pro, and other items that have caught our attention this week. If you'd like to join our exclusive free community for technology leaders, please sign up at techkitchen.io, where you can join our Slack group and keep the conversation going. Hi again, Dave. Hey, Glenn. Great to see you. Great to see you too. So this week, first story I'd like to raise with you is the Google registry has launched eight new top level domains. And this really bugs me. They've got .dad, .phd, .prof, .esq, .esq, .foo, .zip, .mov, and .nexus. And there's so many now. I mean, just doing a quick look look up. In March 2021, there were 1,589 top-level domains, which is ridiculous. And obviously, that was two years ago. So there's you know probably double that now. It's it's silly. And with all these new top-level domains, especially .zip and .mov, that really does concern me. Just as a way of tricking people into doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Those are clearly previously known file names for all operating systems, and now we're turning them to a top-level domain. Do you have any initial thoughts about this, or do you agree that this is uh, sucky decision-making from the top? It seems like a bad idea. And yeah, .zip and .mov are a concern. Obviously, you can see the phishing and and, and hacking uh, uh, risk of that. I can't really understand why Google would do it. Google is famous for having a lot of adventures. You know, they leave a trail of abandoned projects here and there. So there must be some reason that they're doing this. And there's a lot of mixed opinions. I was doing a little reading about it. And some security analysts are saying it's really not a big deal. And they're comparing it to the .pl and .sh extensions, which are, you know, potentially you you, you could say that those things are even more dangerous, a .sh thing, you don't want that running on your server. Then again, you know, most people don't even know what those things are. And most people are not running Perl. I don't even have Perl installed on my laptop. And, you know, people don't know what a shell script is. So I'm not sure if it's good comparison. A zip is something that everybody knows. And we very often receive them in email and we click on them. It just seems like a huge risk. So what is Google doing? Um, I'm always concerned with Google just having too much centralized influence and power. And here we go again. Now we have Google operating these two domains, and in particular, the .zip uh, is concerning. They also run their safe browsing feature, right, which is supposed to protect us from these things. So here's Google, once again, on both sides of almost, it's almost like a marketplace. There are offering a risk and then protecting us from the risk. I can't figure out what they're doing. I wonder if McAfee and Norton and all the others are just going to start blocking it in their browser plugins and things like that. It seems completely unworkable. But what do you think Google is doing? Why would they Why would they do this? What's the benefit for them? It makes no sense to me. I mean, look, the dot-com is always the biggest spending item. People spend a lot of money on getting a dot-com for their company name or for something in particular they want. Then you have dot-co's and then you've got individual countries like dot-co.uk, dot-it, dot-portugal's you know, and all, all these different versions there. So if you can't afford the dot-com, you can always find another top-level domain to go against with exactly your company name against. So... I don't see where the big money is behind this space, unless if you're a super cautious business where you buy 
every domain version that could exist at a top level. So let's say you're Sony and you'll go along, okay, well, we're Sony, well, we now have to buy .dad, Sony.php and Sony.prof just so someone doesn't try to replicate us. So maybe it's trying to be a cash grab from that perspective. But yeah, Zip and MOVs, I mean, experts like us, you know, I'm very cautious when I look at links and stuff like that. And you could easily get tricked, as you say, thinking that's a local zip file, you click on it, and now you've, you've loaded up a website that's full of bad things. So, I mean, this actually reminds me back back in the day, probably about, what, 15 years ago? I can't remember how long ago it was now, where they took the .dev and made that a top-level domain. And that really irked me because I used that so heavily as a developer. So, you know, I was working in as a developer in an agency. So I was working on, let's say, 10 projects at a time. Uh, some in support mode, so not very heavily, obviously, only one that you'd really focus on. But now and again, you'd have to quickly flip back to one of the other sites that you've done in the past to do a quick bug fix, push it up. And I, I used to uh, just point all .dev to my local host. So therefore, I'd have all the websites running on my local machine. And therefore, I could just go to some company I haven't worked with, Sony.dev, and it will then load up the Sony version of the code base on my local machine in the browser without me having to load up any virtual machines, don't have to do anything complicated. It's just there ready to go. And then the second the top-level dev domain comes out, it's like, right, I can't use this approach anymore. That's really annoying. So... Yeah, I, t I don't see the value to it. And I think there's a lot of security professionals out there that are tightening up networks, blocking the .zip and .mov top-level domain names just because, you know, these are brand new, so they don't exist already. And if there ever is one of your employees that needs to access it, then come to you and talk, to about, talk about it because they, can't, they won't be able to access it anyway. I mean, the whole purpose of a .zip, supposedly, is to show that it's a really zip, quick, fast website. When you buy the domain name, they've got no idea what you're actually doing on there. Same with MOV. You could, it's supposed to be for movies. It's like, well, I could you know, just put up pictures. That'll show you, won't it? I'm not going to follow the rules. Is that the reason that they stated .zip? It's going to be a zippy website? I believe so. Yeah, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it's supposed to be um, it's ridiculous. Fast. Exactly. And there's no way to enforce it, and there's no use, use to it. A top-level two-character domain makes sense. So if you want to do things like URL shortening, then that's ideal. So, you know, if you want to be able to, it's like bit.ly, that's how they were able to do it by getting the .ly. But when there's still three or even more characters like .nexus, what's the purpose of that? I just don't see it. No, there's too many domains. Uh, it's gotten ridiculous. There was a period where there was something somewhere between a money grab and authentic utility. All these small nations were claiming their uh, their extensions. So we got the .to .io, .tv from the nation of Tuvalu, I think was the one. But they were making a lot of money on it. And it's kind of seemed useful to have a .tv if you're watching TV and you're media related or something like that. .2 or .io, I think is, is legitimate. And a bunch of others. But it seems like only, what, 10, 15 extensions are, have become sort of normal, right? Where I'll just click on it without thinking about it. Uh, if I see a .co, uh, it's fine, or a .to. But for most of these now, what, 2,000 extensions or however many there are, I'm still apprehensive. If I see a link that's .dad or .sports or .football or whatever, there's a pause. You know, I'm, I'm not quick to click on them. I'm not used to it. And it occurs to me that maybe it's just not catching on. Maybe there's too many domains now, I think, most of them must not be selling well because we still mostly see this core set of five or six really big top-level domains 
and then a handful of others, and that's about it. So is are people really going to use .dad? Father's Day is coming, and I'm a dad. I'm not going to register that. It's ridiculous. Who's got time for this? <laughs> I just don't understand what they're doing. Um, it seems like a Google adventure. I mean, that is the Google culture, is to there's a department of something doing something else, and nobody knows why they're doing it, and then it gets thrown away. So I'm not really feeling it. There was an article on Netcraft about this where they were saying that they were monitoring the .zip extension, and there's been a few thousand registrations already, and they were finding some that were very clearly being positioned or somebody was holding it for phishing, like Microsoft.zip, which was registered by some mysterious uh, entity, Bank of America Securities, .zip and a bunch of other uh, permutations of that Bank of America this Bank of America customer service .zip bank statement .zip you know that's a pretty daunting thing and that one was particularly interesting because it's live and if you click on it it's bank-statement.zip it will take you to a website uh, that says security notice you've landed on this page because you followed a link for a zip file and it gives you a bunch of uh, resources on how to stay safe online. So here we have like a white hat situation. But how hard is it to get somebody like, uh, you know, my mom to click on a link that says bankstatement.zip? Probably not very hard. Seems like a very bad idea. So I find this whole thing to be mysterious. I don't know what they're doing. I suspect that all of the security companies are going to start blocking it very soon, unless there's a real utility. And a zippy website is not going to do it. And now that it's launched, I don't suppose they can ever take it back. So at some point, Google will probably have to block some of these as well themselves. On their own safe browsing feature. Exactly, on Chrome. So just a kick in the teeth. What about PKWare, the company that invented the zip file, which I had to look up this morning? Because I remember when the zip file first came out, it was like 85 or something. And it was a huge deal. Uh, you would have to download WinZip. And you could compress files into one archive. It was very, very exciting. And there was a company making a lot of money on it. It wasn't free. So do they, I wonder if they still own the intellectual property. Is there any legal? Does that company even exist? <laughs> what happened? That's so long ago, I would assume that the copyright would have expired. Maybe. I wonder if they trademarked it. Well, I'm sure that Google thought of that. It's a mystery. What are they doing? I think we can move on from this. Essentially, I think we both agree that there's a lot of danger here. And even the biggest businesses in the world are seemingly just trying to take short cash grabs because there's, you know, there's money to potentially be made in certain aspects here. But yeah, from a security perspective, it's only going to make everyone's lives harder and more risky. Yes. Questionable adventure over at Google. Cool. All right, then. So moving on to the next question, then. The metaverse is not dead, Dave. I thought I'd highlight this uh, because I think uh, from previous conversations, you've always been very negative towards this uh, continuing forward. And the reason why I'm saying that is because Apple have just announced their Vision Pro. Uh, so, yeah, the metaverse is just getting started. We've finally got a big player in the space and uh, all hail our new virtual experiences. 
Obviously, I don't think you and me will have, will have a chance to play with one of these until next year when they actually get released. And I'm definitely not going to buy one for what three and a half thousand dollars that I think they're wanting to get one for it. But yeah, essentially, it's the first step, and you're only, they're only ever going to improve as they get further generations. Initial thoughts on this before we talk about concerns about the space overall for the metaverse. I mean, the metaverse. Okay, it may not be dead, but it was barely alive. So, okay, I'll say it's still on its very, you know, primal quasi-life support that it was on before. The same 300 people, I guess, are still using it, so it's not dead. But Metaverse, to a great degree, is still nothing. When Google released all those top-level domains, uh, it's easy to think of Google as doing a wacky adventure, throwing some money at something, and then years later, we forgot about it. Apple is kind of different. If there's one company that knows how to find commercial success and a product fit and an ecosystem, certainly it's Apple. I mean, uh, there's a lot to love and a lot to hate about Apple, but when it comes to consumer products, it's wildly successful. Uh, they, you know, the iPod and the watch and even some of their failures, like the Newton and things like that, and the Lisa were spectacular products that maybe just were ill-timed. So I think that Apple is not like Google. I think that they're very strategic about it. I'm not exactly sure what the strategy is. My understanding is that the product is good. The, you know, the form factor and everything, Apple, not surprisingly, has done a great job on the hardware. Still, I think the metaverse is maybe not dead, but barely alive. It seems far away. And it's too big. All the headsets are. I'm still stuck on the form factor. It's too big. There's no killer app. Who wants to wear this big thing? We're still stuck that uh, in, if you want virtual reality, it's very good for training, uh, simulations, things like that. There's some healthcare, interest, interesting uh, uses there. A little bit of engineering, gaming, pretty popular. Uh, I'm sure there's some adult, some porn going around, but it's not really taking off. It's just not happening. So where is the killer app? What is Apple doing, right? So from my perspective here, the difference here is that they're going to be open up the app store to this experience. So therefore, you know, your whatever apps that you do, let's say your Twitter feed, if you're still on there or your email list or something like that, you've now got a virtualized experience for that. And yeah, it's not a true metaverse experience, but it's a big step towards that direction. And I agree there is no killer app yet, but with all these apps on there, you know, people will soon start to find how they want to work with these things. So what I think will be interesting, um, just take the assumption that they're successful and people start using this on a regular basis. What are our biggest potential issues or concerns with actually using this, apart from the fact that you see two eyes on the front and it looks really freaky Yeah, if they're actually looking at you or not? <laughs> well, I do agree that Apple is wants to get in the game so they can create the ecosystem. And they know how to do that. They certainly were successful in the App Store. Um, sucking 30% off the top of everything. At $3,500, that's not going to happen now, but Apple is probably playing a long game. They're going to refine the hardware and it should be okay. It is a concern that there already is a $500 headset out there, which may not be as sophisticated hardware-wise, but it's pretty good and it's not exactly flying off the shelves either. So I think Apple's going to have to wait. That said, they have not spent anywhere near the money that Meta is. They're not really investing in Metaverse. They're investing in their hardware play and trying to position. So we'll see. There's a lot of risks with this kind of thing, which is why I think that what is going to happen, both for Meta and Apple, 
is that the whole headset, giant, gigantic thing, the VR, is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And then one day, it'll start to get so small, it'll start to look like a HoloLens or Google Glass. And that is when we're going to start seeing really, really interesting apps come out because it's the mixed uh, reality that works. Until then, yeah, lots of lots of risks. The headset is too big. There were people after the demo with all these red marks on their face because it's heavy. I've done VR before and it's kind of sweaty. You know, it, it's not that comfortable. People are still getting nauseous. They haven't really done well with that problem. People with prescription glasses struggle with it. There's physical danger. It's okay that you can see what's outside of you to some degree, but you're still kind of covered up. So there is a danger to your body. Uh, somebody sneaks up on you. Kids in isolation and doom scrolling. It just goes on and on. You can trip on something, trip on a banana peel and fall over. It just goes on and on. It's too big. It's just too big. So yeah, very risky. And what if it gets hacked? And I mean, this just goes on and on. Don't you think this is a... How, how mainstream can it be? Do people really want to be wearing that thing with the big eyes in the front? I mean, that's the interesting thing. So if we took the assumption that the technology improves, they're able to make it lighter and you were able to wear this, then straight away, first thing to consider is the health issues. So with that, you know, back, head or eye strain, you could say the same thing about iPhones now. You know, you put your head down as you look, you know, as you look at your phone. I think most people now have got a bit of a dip in their shoulders because their head's constantly down looking at their phone. Like whenever I'm commuting, I'm constantly like that now. So this gives something different. If you always sat down in a comfortable chair, then maybe that would correct it. But I think there's definitely some issues around the health aspects, which obviously haven't been perceived yet, because obviously this isn't getting used in a serious way. And I'm always concerned about battery issues because we've seen um, certain Samsung phones explode in the past. Um, That's right. You know, I'm hoping Apple will, are better than that. But, you know, there is a heavier risk if you've got something attached to your face than if you just got it on the side of your desk. Absolutely. So, yeah, so from a health perspective, there's a lot of unknowns here. So, therefore, that's one piece, even if they were able to lighten it up, because obviously in the current state, it's going to be very heavy and you're going to have like Arnold Schwarzenegger neck muscles by, you know, after a month of using it, I'm sure. Yeah, and it's not a good look either. <laughs> I, don't, I, I feel like I need a bit more bulk around my shoulder area. No, not the neck muscles, just the headset. Oh, right. oh, the headset itself. Yeah, I mean, they do look a bit freaky, especially with the fake eyes on front. And supposedly they, they, that's there deliberately to show whether they're looking at you or not. But you know someone's going to download an app which overtakes that to, so you can sit in class and have your eyes open, making it look like you're there and blinking where actually you're fast asleep. That's the first app. Do you know what? There we go. There's the first app I should create for this before we even see it. Fantastic. Um, so there's always going to be um, you know hacks and use cases there. But then let's say that this is actually a really good tool, hypothetically. And then it's like, right, okay, I'm going to have my emails on here now. I'm going to be, you know, have my Word documents. I'm going to be able to sit in a comfortable environment when I'm on a train or on a plane and work without needing to have a laptop in front of me. This now adds a whole new level of complexity of how do you secure the data if it's working like this? How do you ensure there's privacy? Essentially, tracking users' activities already exists on smartphones and, and uh, work laptops. If this becomes a standard day of a way of working, then they're definitely going to be able to want to track how you're using it, how often you're using it to make sure that, you know, you're not abusing the situation only on for one hour a day where you should be doing eight hours. Right. Fake heads and things like that. Exactly. 
Yeah, for fake mouse moves. You know, there's some um, simple hacks where people just put a rotating fan and connect that to the mouse, so the mouse constantly moving back and forward on the screen to make it look like they're actually moving. And you got software to do the same thing. And then, yeah, the final one, as you mentioned, you know, home life. You know, will it affect the home life if you are starting to work like this? It, are all your children just going to be sat around in the living room with this headset on, no communicate, at least with a phone or with a TV screen? You can wave in front of them and get their attention. If they've got one of these things on, maybe that's not going to happen at all. Maybe they're going to set their viewport as 100%, so therefore they won't see anything that's going on around them. And you have to like give them a clop over the back of the head to tell them dinner's ready. And how do you know what your kid is looking at in there? Right? I mean... Very fair point. I think that people need to be in the world. Even if you're just scrolling away on a phone, you're still in the world. Right? If, there's, if there's a fire, you'll see it. You are there, you're physically present, your eyes are exposed, you're part of the world. If you're in that headset, you're kind of not. So here we are again, wondering if there's gonna be a killer app for the big headset. And meanwhile, once we take it down in size, which is gonna take a lot of hardcore technology, but you get it down to the Google Glass or the HoloLens size, and now there's applications just coming all over the place, right? It's, um, you know, it's sort of augmenting, it's augmented reality. You're walking down the street, and there's a sale, right, uh, at the store that you're walking by and it pops up. So there's just all kinds of things, doctors and reference and teleprompters, you name it. It is worthy to note that um, Google Glass, and to some degree, HoloLens has been kind of a failure. HoloLens, I think, is, is more of a success than people say, but it hasn't exactly been a runaway success. So I think even that technology is early. What Apple and Meta are both doing is leaning into this idea that the killer app, the big win here is that if you and I are having a call, like we are now, instead of just seeing each other on a screen, we can see each other in this virtual space. It's very realistic. Apple's calling it the persona where it scans your face and reproduces your face in this very realistic way with all the gestures and expressions and Meta calls it something else. And it's pretty cool. I was watching the demo, uh, not with a headset on, but even just online. It's very interesting. It's very impressive. But it's a big leap. Would I rather put a big headset on so I can have a, quote, more realistic view of you? Right now, I can see your expressions. It's pretty good. I think it would be very uncomfortable to be sitting here with that thing on my face just so that I can see you better. They're investing a lot of energy into this idea that we want more realism. We want to have meetings as if someone is really there. But do we really want that? It sounds nice, but what are we willing to do to get that? I mean, think about phones came along and you could just talk to someone. And then there was video, right? Now we have Zoom. It's nice to be able to see somebody. Uh, and yet uh, email and text messaging seem to be the biggest ways to communicate in Slack. I text much more than I Zoom, I think. So do we need more 3D realism? I don't know. I don't see it. I haven't sent a text message in at least six months, Dave, and probably three years apart from my sister because she keeps on forgetting that she's on WhatsApp and forgets to use that form of uh, communication. Well, I include that in text message. I'm just, I mean, texting, not like an SMS. Oh, okay, cool. I mean, texting, Slack, the whole thing. Okay, sure. That makes more sense. I was about to say, you still send text messages, Dave? It's going to get through one podcast without an old age cheap shot. Well, 
I will mention the old age piece, actually. I was thinking, so if if we are creating, like, avatars, which is supposed to represent us, then that gives us a way to misrepresent ourselves as well. So essentially, I can make sure my avatar looks like I'm 18 again. And therefore, that's that's how it is. Or, you know, go the opposite direction, make my avatar look like I'm 60. So I'm a serious person. So therefore, I might have more gravitas. Or so I steal your avatar. Remotely, yeah, even worse, exactly. Yeah. So essentially, you're there talking to my bank manager. And, you know, essentially, how do you verify that the avatars are actually accurate to the person? And is that actually something we need? So there we go. I think we just created three apps that we need for the App Store. The fake your eyes, the is there a fire in front of me, and the verify your uh, avatar identity. Yes, steal someone's face. When we were talking about um, passkeys uh, last month, you were making this point that you only have one face, and so if someone steals your your the essence of your face, uh, you've sort of lost control of your facial recognition. And in that way, biometrics can be kind of dangerous. So here, it's not just your your face. It is scanning your face. There's a biometric there because that's how it actually authenticates and knows that it's you. But now we're trusting this device with that information. I'm not sure how that security works. And then you're reproducing that face, not just for authentication, but to actually interact. So someone, I mean, it's taking it a step further. With a pass key, if you lose your biometrics to someone, they can log in as you and authenticate. Here, they can do the same, but actually be you. It wouldn't be much of a stretch to have AI uh, trained on your voice, especially since your voice has been recorded quite a bit, and um, it can be trained on that. Now I can steal your face, put it in there, and I can be you. I can speak, and it will look like you, and it will sound like you. So that seems like a bad idea. The whole idea of the virtual workspace even if we have legs, I know that there's legs coming. It just doesn't sound that great to me. The Zoom call is a little funky, but if we're all in a virtual space, sitting in a room together at a virtual table, is that really the killer app? That's it? I don't see it. I have more faith that I think this is going to be successful just because of the money that's been put into it. I think that this is going to become, in 10 years, more part of our daily life. Obviously, we need the technology to get better. And as you say, for these considerations to actually be made, I think we're so early. There's a lot of these things we've just discussed that haven't actually been considered yet around identity, around safety in the real workplace. You know, if your cat jumps on you, that's going to give you a right heart attack if you didn't see it coming. So, yeah, there's a lot of things here to account for. But I, I, I don't know. I, th- I think there's a potential for it to stay. The whole Google Glass thing, I managed to have a try of that because one of the people that worked for me went over to the event and got one when they got released. I thought it was amazing. You know, essentially, it was, it was just what I needed. You know, he wouldn't let me buy it off him. But it would have been fantastic for me, especially when I was out working at events. You got real-time data stream of information coming to you. That would have been fine for me. It's a shame that product didn't continue and I think that's due to poor marketing and uh, opinion rather than actual technology, because that was a fine first step in the same direction that Apple's just taking now. Yeah, maybe it was too early. And Apple is much better than Google at creating a marketplace. I just think it's the form factor. I- I'm stuck on that. I can't get past it. I don't want a sweaty head. I think that they will get smaller and smaller, and then the full-on VR immersive experience where you're completely inside is going to be limited to uh, gaming and, and a few, you know, training and a few things, what we're seeing now. And I think it's going to look a lot like HoloLens, 
at some point. And at that point, Apple, if they continue to stay in the game, maybe they can create an ecosystem around it. They know how to do it. But I bet you in 10 years, it'll be unusual to put on full VR, especially at work. I don't want that. I don't want to do that all day. But mixed reality glasses that kind of look like current day glasses and are stylish. You can walk around with them. You can be on the train. Uh, you can be driving, things like that. I think that's going to be huge. I think um, that's the way to go. I think that's just, it's going to collapse into that. And I think there will be no metaverse. I agree. Right now, I don't want full VR experience, but I'm thinking in 10 years, I am going to want it. But let's see. Let's see. Wait, well, but what's the difference? If you, Why would you want it in 10 years, but not now? Because I think that it will get better and get to a point where I think it will actually meet some fact, um, some use case that's going to be more valuable to me than I can think of right now. So I, th- I think this part of the industry is going to move forward quickly. It could just die off. It could be the next, um, you know, was it Lime bike or something, you know, Lime scooter or something like that where people aren't using them anymore and just get thrown in a corner. You can throw them in the ocean. Exactly. It's very possible. But I I like the idea because we haven't had a big change in this industry for a while. The iPhone was the last one. And if someone can create something that's valuable enough for you, then absolutely I could see my opinion changing and wanting one of these. In fact, my opinion's already half changed, but I can't say why because I haven't seen it, I haven't used it, I haven't seen any real real use case yet. But I feel like I'm already, you know, near that cliff edge of making that jump. You want that killer app. Maybe maybe that's what it is. I just want it. I, I want it because it's super geeky and you know, super technology focused rather than it being valuable at this point. So yeah, I want it to work. That's probably a better way to phrase it. I want it to work, though I agree right now I don't see enough value into it, especially for the price point and for the potential health risks of having to wear one of these for a large period of the day. Well, we'll see. There's a lot of money going into finding that killer app. And so far, nothing. So we shall see. I'll see you in 10 years. We'll probably raise it next year. And if I if I had the time, I'll probably make that blinking app, you know, just so it makes it look like your eyes are open and blinking. Because, uh, you know, that's the first thing that's going to be available once the apps, once uh, the devices are released. Yeah, the Nap app is going to be huge. There, you've named it as well. That's a perfect name for it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> you can All have right. that one. Moving on to uh, what caught our attention this week. So uh, what have you come across, Dave? There was an article in the Wall Street Journal. It was a very good article. Talked about how uh, there is a huge network of uh, pedophiles on Instagram. And this article kind of went into a lot of detail about what is happening and these experiments that they did where they did these very kind of kind of modest uh, attempts to find this kind of content, this just awful content going around and how easy it was to get connected to a network of people trading all this illegal and super gross content. And, you know, we know that these social networks and TikTok and Instagram, they are very good at bringing together groups of people. And usually it's a good thing. There are um, marginalized groups and people who sort of need a community, people that are in isolation, that find each other online and Facebook and TikTok, and it's wonderful. So, you know, one of the strengths of social media is that this kind of thing can happen. But here we have a group been together that is, it's not a good group. I mean, this is terrible stuff. And I think the takeaway 
is that if you look at the article and you read uh, the parts about just what kind of resources are going in and what Instagram or Meta is doing about it, you see that once again, we cannot trust big tech to watch out for our kids. They are for-profit companies. They're going to spend enough money uh, as they have to, to avoid bad press and to say that they're working hard. Kind of like we're talking about hacking. A company will spend as much money trying to avoid being hacked as they need to, to prevent a really bad PR hit when it does happen, right? That's kind of the thing. They're not trying to protect everyone completely. And it's just sadly lacking. And there should be more responsibility on these companies because for each article like this, there's probably 10 that haven't been written yet. Other weird things um, and meddling in elections and all that stuff. So, you know, I'm always pro-government regulation, for these things. I don't really have any great ideas on how to do that, but I support that idea. The EU has been doing well on that. I think we need more and more and more of it and forcing these big social media companies to take some responsibility for it. So it's a great article. It's kind of sad, but yeah, they've got to get it together and hopefully be forced by the threat of uh, litigation, criminal charges, things like that, to make very, very meaningful very expensive efforts to prevent this stuff, uh, just like any other company needs to do for their customers. That is what I got. What got my attention this week? Okay, cool. And from uh, my my side, just actually continuing on from the Lazarus Heist conversation we had in the last podcast, I mentioned it'd be interesting to know what other countries are doing, and it looks like we've seen something similar. The Clock Group, which is thought to be based in Russia. Uh, hacked a piece of popular business software called Move It. I'm not sure if this hit the news over in uh, the US, but um, I think most US companies were actually attacked by this, where essentially this is a secure file transfer solution, mainly dealing with things like payroll data. Uh, the UK is, was utilising the same software, so therefore that's companies like the BBC, British Airways and Boots. And, you know, essentially you're always vulnerable, you know, no matter which whether it's government information you share or with the BBC or these big companies, there's always exploits somewhere. I mean, in this case, in this case, um, it looks like it's just payroll data. So I assume it's just issues for the internal employees, which you never have a choice on. You have to give your personal information to your company. But there's also always a risk that, you know, other information has been passed across there. And how the m- number of times that, you know, you and me just do a quick security assessment of a platform and you come across it, you see port 22 is open. You know, it's it's ridiculous, especially when you're using cloud services, which makes it so easy to close this off. And actually, we saw an interesting website, which I shared with you, Dave, uh, brute.fail. And this is just um, the logs of people trying to attack a single SSH server that he's just left port 22 open, just shows you what the username and password is. And as you can see, it's just constantly getting hit with some username and password to try and log in. And that's the modern day life. Every system you set up that's public on the internet is going to get found straight away and try to be hacked. So therefore, you just need to be super cautious right from the get-go. Yeah, more of the same, uh, I guess. I remember working with MoveIt. I was writing code with MoveIt. It's been around for a long time. I think that uh, on one, in one hand, it's more of the same. On the other hand... This is a massive uh, ransomware attack. And what was interesting about it is that there were so many victims on this one, so many uh, companies affected, that uh, the perpetrators of it, uh, Klopp, they weren't able to reach out to all these companies 
to try to get the ransom. So they released sort of a you know widespread message like, hey, if you have uh, lost your data, please contact us. <laughs> you know where to find us. Uh, I don't know if they have a customer service line or an 800 number or something, but they said, you know, reach out and we'll, uh, you can talk to our ransom department and we'll get it sorted for you. I think the deadline is in two or three days, but I mean, that's very bold for them to say like, hey, get in touch, you know how to do it. I mean, this is getting to the point where it's just a, another business, you know? How much do people care? I think we're going to see, again, what is the value of people's data? And the value is always lower than we think, right? All the payroll data, I don't know, it's been hacked so many times. How much is it worth? Who really cares? We're back in the same thing. It just um, it keeps happening over and over again. It might be time for more like trustless authentication, things like that, and then like an open ledger, maybe blockchain can save the day and just put all the data out of the open anyways and use some kind of a different system instead of taking something and saying we're going to privately move it in this armored van from here to there. So maybe blockchain will come back, but I think this isn't going anywhere and I think people are burning out. The ransomware world seems to be burning out its own client base. <laughs> There's too much, too much supply. Nobody cares anymore. Everything's already been stolen so many times. I'm not sure how much money they're going to make, but I don't know. Do you think a lot of uh, companies are going to quietly pay the ransom? I think um, when they have lost their data, I think a lot of cases they do because it um, sweeps under the carpet, having to go to all your customers and find out, you know, start again and say, oh, by the way, we lost your data. You're going to have to give it us again. And it's like, well, you've already lost my data once. I'm not going to give you it again. So therefore, it's better for them to pay the ransom. It is concerning when you've got a group like this say, okay, we've got no idea who to contact. If you've got all this data, surely you can wade through it. Or maybe it's just so much data, so many terabytes worth that they just go, do you know what? It's going to be too hard work. Let's just say, oh, by the way, we've we've done this. Whoever's a boss, come come have a word with me, please. I mean, it's it's bold. That's for sure. But these were these were this was data in transport, large files being moved around. So most companies probably did not lose the data. Because if I send you a huge copy of something, I usually won't just delete the original immediately. So I, th I suspect most of the companies didn't lose the data. It was just exposed. And having something exposed is just not that big a deal. <laughs> I don't know. Exactly. And with exposed, you can never guarantee that they actually deleted it. With ransomware, you can say, yes, my system's working again now. But when it's uh, a case of we have a copy of your data, we'll expose it. It's like, well, we'll pay you, but how do we know you're going to delete it? How do you know you don't have a backup? There's no way to guarantee that, and it's not going to come back and bite you. So I would say that this is not quite Lazarus level of work. It's impressive. But it also shows the bluntness where they just don't care. And, you know, there's certain countries in the world where you can do this. And as long as you don't attack your own citizens, they're never going to be able to come and get you. So if you are a hacking group in Russia, as long as you don't attack the Russians, then they're never going to care. And, you know, if you're attacking the West, they go, oh, yeah, fine. And let's be honest, it's probably the same in the US in certain cases as well, where if you're attacking Russia the opposite direction, they're probably not going to arrest you as long as you don't attack any of their um, Western allies or themselves. So, yeah, it's almost becoming an us versus them approach in certain countries 
are happy for other people to get involved in these forms of attacks if they are clever and successful. Yes. Well, they were clever and successful. Um, we'll see how much money comes in. But, yep, it's just it's going to keep going. And I think that privacy in general, we're sort of changing the game on what that means and what the expectations are. So here we go again. I'll be curious to see how much money they make if we find out. Yeah, exactly. I'll be, I'll be interested to know if they do actually publish that. And the fact that it's been so public already, I'd assume it would be. But um, you never know. Undisclosed some. I expect a quarterly report from the Klopp Group. <laughs> Maybe they'll do a, a keynote speech and, and tell us about it. I'll tell you what, that would be interesting if uh, these hacking groups actually became like public listed companies just because there's a clear revenue stream for certain um, organizations. Yeah, it's highly investable. <laughs> They're doing very well. Wonderful. All right, then, so we should probably wrap it up there. So uh, great talking to you again, Dave. Always a pleasure. And uh, for the audience, thanks for listening. Do check us out at techkitchen.io and continue to subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Gwen.